episode 205 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cells in Space, with Dr. Kate Rubens. Hey everybody, we are Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds on Earth and beyond. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Kate Rubens, a NASA astronaut and microbiologist on the podcast to talk about her work carrying out stem cell projects in space, some of which were designed by my co-host, the intrepid Arun Sharma. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming right up. But first, and definitely can't wait to catch up with Kate, we'd like to introduce Muscle Cell News, a free weekly newsletter provided by the Stem Cell Science News Program. Muscle Cell News summarizes all of the latest research news jobs and events in muscle cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Monday. Save time and keep current with Muscle Cell News, and you can subscribe for free at www.musclecellnews.com. Ah, Rune, I'm starting off the roundup talking about something I'm like bored with myself, but I can't not <laughs> talk about the blood. This is a big one. So you're going to have to forgive me. Uh, you know, we've been searching for the Holy Grail of, I have to say medicine, but specifically hematology and hematopoietic biology, uh, the hematopoietic stem cell, right? That's what we've been looking for for decades since we knew it existed. And we think we're there every year. You hear a story. Oh, we got it. We got it from IPS cells. Oh, we can self-renew it from the blood. Boom, boom, boom. No, it's falling short every time. We're not quite there. The thing is, is that at steady state, the hematopoietic stem cells are quiescent. I mean, that's the whole thing. They got to hang around for the entire lifespan, right? Um, at least a store of them uh, as they're mobilized under stress conditions and to maintain physiological balance of the hematopoietic system. But in order to maintain that quiescence, they're like, you know, they're on the low, exhibit very low biosynthetic activity. And in order to do this, they rely on, it's thought and largely agreed upon, they rely on glycolytic ATP production, um, thereby inhibiting mitochondrial, uh, you know, oxidative phosphorylation that results from mitochondrial activity so that they can hang around for decades, right? Um, but they also have to be able to reversibly switch the program under stress and meet the high energy demands of when you mobilize a hematopoietic system and you make billions of cells from one, right? So it's, this has been the question. How do, you, how do you mobilize? How do you, well, not so much how do you mobilize, but how do you retain a hematopoietic cell in the quiescent state? And uh, it's emerged over the last few years that uh, metabolites and metabolo metabolism um, is key here. Metabolites can be uh, detected by transcription factors, and then those transcription factors can modulate all kinds of gene activity. And vitamins, as metabolites in particular, have been suggested to play important roles in stem cell function. And in previous work, actually, um, Nina Cabezas Walshied who's now at the Max Planck Institute. In previous work, uh, she showed that the vitamin A retinoic acid 
um, played a really critical role in hematopoietic stem cell function. In fact, that if you deprive vitamin A from mice, uh, they lose quiescence. And if you treat them with uh, this vitamin A metabolite, this active metabolite, all trans RA, all trans retinoic acid, you can preserve stemness even under stress conditions. But the way that uh, this system specifically and generally, the way that retinoids regulate uh, HSC activity is really largely unknown. And so that's where uh, Nina came in here in her group um, and really leveraged the real technical developments. You know, we're able to do such amazing things now with all the omics, uh, the scientific community at large is able to do amazing things um, with all the NGS and metabolomics, et cetera. And um, Nina's group leveraged those resources here to get over this major technical challenge, which has really been central to HSC biology is their scarcity. It's so hard to get them, right? It's so hard to get them in abundance because they're so scarce. Uh, so that's really been a limitation in trying to understand what the interplay between all these different, you know, biological apparatus are, metabolism, the transcriptional activity, the epigenome. So here they went omics to the max with low input, metabolomics, they did RNA-seq, they did uh, ATAC-seq, they did CHIP-seq. And with that, those four horsemen, they revealed these critical metabolic hubs that are specific to hematopoietic stem cells. And indeed here using those tools, and this is what's great I think about leveraging all these next generation tools is that it's discovery, all the discovery um, that they give you access to. It's not just about proving your hypothesis, but stumbling upon stuff and seeing how central it is here. They uncovered that there's this non-classical retinoic acid signaling axis um, that relies on CYP26B1. Um, and while in, in the traditional view has thought that uh, CYP26B1 was limiting of the effect of retinoic acid and retinoic acid signaling, they show here that CYP26B1 in contrast is indispensable for making this active metabolite 4-OXO-RA. And, and mechanistically, they show that 4-OXO-RA acts via this retinoic acid receptor beta. But here's the key. They show that this single metabolite, or they, they emphasize, as they say, that this sim, single metabolite controls stem cell fate, okay? And that's a landmark and a bombshell. Um, and I'm just waiting for all the hematopoietic big gurus to, to get in line to chop this paper down. But I mean, from where I'm standing, this looks like a real critical insight into understanding how hematopoietic stem cell function is governed, mobilization is governed, quiescence maybe, and maybe a means of generating hematopoietic stem cells and keeping them in this uh, pluri or multipotent state so we can maximize their therapeutic efficacy. So I'm really excited about this, but I'm just waiting for all the stones to, to take flight. Yeah, another reason to take your vitamins, to eat your carrots, to help maintain your HSCs, right? And certainly a beautiful story with combining a bunch of omics analyses, metabolomic analyses, uh, transcriptome, epigenome, to really get to the heart of why um, this pathway may be able to influence HSC renewal. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the key point, right? Anytime you're able to distill these 
pretty complex processes down to a single metabolite, a single entity in like this SIP 26B1, you wonder if it's really that exclusive. And I, I'm of the opinion and probably, you know, my gut feeling is that it's not that simple, you know? And so I agree with you. I think it's just probably a matter of time before folks start to realize that it's probably a little bit more complicated than just the single metabolite, right? Yes, absolutely. But, you know, again, to emphasize the approach, I think that this is this representative of a, a new era. And I think all, all the papers we're talking about today, as we always do, because we're at the cutting edge, Arun. But this one and, and the others we're talking about today in particular really show how, how the tech, the tech is informing discovery. You know, these are no longer experiments that are born of the mind of some seasoned researcher who's had hypotheses kicking around for decades. You know, the tech can lead you to the light. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a really big deal for, for younger researchers looking at science and just seeing there's so many stones that are sitting right in plain sight. We just don't really have the resolution to see them. Yes, absolutely. For the young scientists out there, it's no, there's no shame in latching on to a cool new piece of tech and making it your own because there's so many different pieces of technology that you can really uh, learn and, and take to heart and it'll certainly help your career in that way. You know, one of those is all these omics technologies, right? So the epigenomics, metabolomics, you can kind of turn that into your own skill set. And certainly another one that we love to talk about here on the show are these brain and cortical organoid cultures, as we've discussed ad nauseum through many papers and many guests in the past. And yeah, so I'm going to shift a little bit from the blood to the brain and focus on one of these papers coming out in Nature Neuroscience is actually utilizing uh, brain organoid slice cultures, uh, kind of a different twist on the organoid story, uh, to look at some of the mechanisms driving ALS, right? That's amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's a, it's a fatal and currently untreatable disease that's characterized by a really sad, debilitating, rapid cognitive decline and ultimately paralysis. This is, you know, side note, this is actually part of the work that my, uh, my department chair here at Cedar sinai Dr. Clive Spencer, is focusing on. And yeah, we need to really get to the bottom of this disease. It's so sad to see the progression of this, this particular disorder. So we got to figure out how the cells that are contributing to ALS um, are, you know, making this disease progress. And that's critical to actually ultimately understanding therapeutic development and development of different targets, different drugs that may be able to reverse some of these phenotypes that are associated with uh, patients with ALS. But the tricky part is you know, as you might understand, getting samples from folks who are pre-symptomatic, who may be inclined to develop ALS from, you know, from the brain, that, that's, that's not really feasible. It's kind of the same story with the heart. That's part of the reason that IPS cardiomyocytes took off is because it's really hard to get primary cardiac samples for basic science studies, just like it is with the brain, right? And so here, what they did is they created a cerebral organoid slice model that's actually created from human iPSCs that can recapitulate some of that cortical architecture that's found in patients with ALS. And it can even display some of the early molecular pathology of ALS that's driven by C9 or 72, which is one of the major drivers of this disease. And kind of like what they did in the last paper, they used a combination of single cell RNA sequencing, different omics approaches, different biological assays to figure out that there are a variety of transcriptional proteomic 
and DNA repair disturbances that are actually found in multiple cell types in these uh, slice cultures, both the astroglia and the neurons too. The astroglia actually have increased levels of autophagy signaling protein, P62, and that the neurons have an accumulation of dipeptide repeat, uh, poly-GA, and a bunch of DNA damage, uh, different phenotypes that may be driving some of those ALS phenotypes, right? And the, I guess, part of the reason that this has got, this is a nature neuroscience is that they're able to rescue some of these phenotypes and they're in mutual cultures through a, a pharmacological rescue by a small molecule, GSK2606414. They got to think of a better name for that one. Um, so yeah, it's another in vitro disease model utilizing cortical organoids, brain organoids in a different context. This is a, a slice culture. So perhaps you can reproduce and maintain some of those intrinsic cellular uh, connections um, to get a better understanding of what's actually happening in this setting of ALS. And really, as I said at the, the start, you need to, to figure out, you, Daylon, I need to figure out, everybody needs to figure out what's going on in ALS because it's such a devastating disease. And just to see the progression of these otherwise healthy patients down this road is, you know, it's really sad to see. So everything helps, right? Yeah, one of the great promises since early days has been treatments for ALS uh, because, yeah, it's so stark, the difference uh, in these people's lives five years on from diagnosis. It's tragic. Um, this one talks about a recapitulating mature cortical architecture, but it's a, you always, you know, bemoan the struggles we have with getting mature cells to recapitulate phenotypes that have a late onset here. My takeaway from this was that while that is still perhaps an issue that maybe there is some element of the ALS uh, or front, front of tape, temporal dementia, fronto temporal, whatever that one is. <laughs> fronto temporal, yeah, that's that. F FTD, you can say it. There you go, there you go. There it is, that one. Um, that they may be some path pathological hallmarks that are evident even in early stages or prenatally, am I way off there? No, I think that's uh, that's the right idea. It's because this is being driven by some sort of genetic mutation. The thought is maybe you can anticipate the development of that disease phenotype uh, using these cells that maybe are able to be matured more rapidly in an in vitro setting. It is definitely a valid concern, and it's it's a it's a concern across the board if you're looking at adult diseases. Like I run into this in the heart as well. If you're trying to study study an adult cardiomyopathy, how do you model it in an immature cell type like this? Right. I mean, the thought is if you can distill some of those mechanisms down to a single gene, then maybe you're able to better elucidate some of those processes, but it's tough. It is, it is definitely a tough game. Well, I mean, with the diagnosis of ALS being early in many cases, this would go a long way if you could address or, or mitigate or delay the phenotype. So exciting work and important insight. Um, I'm staying in the brain. I'm going earlier even, and this is really earliest, I would say, um, and important because it's also talking about fundamentally about organogenesis. And this is getting back to our brief little foray there discussing how tech is really propping up a whole new era of science. This is a great example of that too, I think. You know, when we talk about development of any organ, I think stem cell biologists are at least the, the dinosaurs like myself and uh, those older than me, not you. <laughs> But um, you're always thinking about cell induction and, you know, morphogen gradients and, and, and you know, it's a, it's a signal that dictates fate. 
But uh, what we have always appreciated, but I think maybe forgotten, it's taken the younger generation to bring us back, is that it's a mechanical process, right? And particularly in the brain, uh, development begins with folding, right? Folding into a tube. And fundamentally, a failure there in neural folding is one of the most common birth defects out there. One in a thousand pregnancies, everybody knows about failures in neural tube folding because we see it. Um, and there's been animal models to try and address it uh, on the cellular level even, uh, but there are really human specific aspects of neural tube development that can't be recapitulated in these models. Of course, I hear you're about to say it organoids, right? And organoids are key and they've made a lot of critical steps in our understanding of self-fate decisions and, and the 3D mechanical process underlying that. But they're kind of, uh, I wouldn't say random. I would say it's difficult to reproduce the architecture, anatomic architecture. Um, and the architecture isn't always, I would say even rarely, uh, while the rudiments are there, it rarely uh, approaches, I would say, the superstructure uh, of, of the general you know, self-fate patterning that you see in vivo. Um, then you have the organ on a chip, right? So you can try and enforce some physical restraints. But the problem is there, the cells are forced into that assembly, uh, which is static. Um, so the cells are, they lose a lot of the elements of self-organization, right? So this being the case, uh, that background, uh, the group of Sebastian Streichmann, who's at the, uh, in the Department of Physics, all right, and also in the Department of uh, Science and Engineering, Biomolecular Science and Engineering at uh, UC Santa Barbara, and that says a lot. This is a physics paper, um, although it's in nature. Uh, inspired by the physical process of, uh, of in vivo organogenesis, what um, Sebastian's group did is they did a kind of hybrid. They started with a two-dimensional sheet um, modeling the neuroepithelium, in the, in the lumen below it that begins, that's the, the nucleus of neural tube formation. Uh, and so they had a, a structure that modeled that, that two-dimensional sheet, and they use that as this kind of biochemical, uh, molecular, and physical starting point. And then they pretty much dumped some matrigel on top of it, and that triggered this 3D morphogenic process, but starting from this initial um, shape and doing that, they were able to recreate neural tube folding using human stem cells. And this is a key here, folding with 90% fidelity. You know, I think a lot of these papers, we talk about um, making the, what do they call them again? The eye blast assist, the-, the Oh yeah, all these, ga gastroloids, all those gastroloids, things. Gastroloids, everything yeah. they're making, the, the, this is key. It's, and some of them do better than others, but I think it's really important now that we're incorporating the, the percentages here because, you know, a fluke can happen now all the time. Um, showing this happens with 90% 90, 90 fidelity, I think, emphasizes that we're approaching a level of, of physical control here um, that's, that's critical. And, and, and the end product anatomically resembles a human neural tube, guys. Um, and showing what it took here, making it a nature paper, they show that it's the neural uh, and non-neural ectoderm are necessary and sufficient. So just those two. Uh, and it's the results from two mechanisms, essentially is the apical contraction of the ectoderm. And then there's the adhesion of that ectoderm, the basal uh, at the basal level uh, to matrix that's synthesized by the non-neural ectoderm. So one cell is creating the matrix, the other is attaching to it and having this apical constriction or contraction. Then 
They use drugs to show that they can get um, molecular defects or morphological defects that are similar to the neural tube defects that you see in, in vivo. Um, I, I don't know about whether those drugs are, are really relevant, um, although I just don't know. They, they probably are. Um, and lastly, and I think this is key, they showed that it was the width, and this is kind of unexpected, it was the width of the tissue that dictated the shape, all right? So I love this story because it, it, it recapitulates a natural process. It derives some insight, insight about um, you know, what the mechanism is there, and then it provides a little unexpected twist here, showing that it's the, the geometry, not just the, the morphogen gradients that really dictate uh, some of the, the superstructure of, of these organs during organogenesis. Yeah, I really like this story for a few different reasons. One, like you said, the the percentage, the fidelity of this process, 90%, that indicates that this is a reproducible thing, right? And if it's really that reproducible, then the, perhaps other labs can pick up on it and use this as a model system for neural tube development too. And uh, you know, I'm a big fan of that. Um, two, this is sort of in contrast to the previous story we talked about, right? When we we're looking at adult phenotypes, adult phenotypes for ALS. In my opinion, this actually may be the best way to utilize induced pluripotent stem cell derived cells to look at early developmental processes because, you know, when you're differentiating these cells in a dish, you know, you are recapitulating some of those early morphogenic processes as opposed to an adult phenotype. I'm probably going to set off a bunch of red flags around the community by saying something like that. But, you know, I am, I, I guess I sort of am an adult cardiac biologist, but I still think that the most powerful application for iPSC derived cells is in the um, the early developmental modeling, the early developmental processes. And you're right. I mean, the, the fidelity is great. The, the dev bio is great. And the next question for me is, you know, can, can you use this as in a high throughput way? Like some of these chip based systems are not always amenable to like a high throughput format, but they actually kind of alluded to it here. They started introducing some drugs that may be able to recapitulate some of these neural tube defects. So, you know, if you can create some sort of high throughput system for an analyzing neural tube defects, I think that would be very exciting. Yeah, well, this is high profile because neural tube defects are such a high prevalence, right? And at the same time, there's not a lot of uh, defects that uh, present present at birth that manifest in like the real primitive organogenesis. So you could even argue your primary. So um, yeah, this is, I think, a unique case. But I, 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 I'm not disagreeing with you. I agree that early developmental processes are, are it's where we can really have, have the strongest um, insight because we can control those systems because they're they're relatively, uh, I don't want to say simple, they're less complex. But for me, the other insight here, and I think it's coming out in a lot of papers that I've seen, is that it's really about cobbling together the rudiments and then letting biology take over. I mean, there was Matthias Lutoff, which was also relatively not a super complex system. But I can envision in the future where, you know, you put 10 cell types together, maybe. Uh, and if you can are able to even, you know, maybe even have to put them together in the perfect micro pattern lattice or anything. But the point being is that combinatorially, I think, as we approach a greater understanding, we can integrate more complexity and maybe get to some more end, end, end stage organs. Some of the organs that take place, you know, post gas relation um, that are a little bit more complex and therapeutically relevant.
Yeah, absolutely. It's a good point to bring up Matthias Lutov because, you know, he's also very excited about using some of these scaffolding technologies to, to study developmental processes. So don't forget to, to think about some of these really cool technologies and how they can uh, intersect with early development and help us understand early development. And so speaking of actually early development and also neural uh, the neural system, the neurons and neural development. I'm going to shift gears to the last story of the roundup, which is actually using a, a model system that we don't talk about too much on the show, but of course has a tremendous regenerative capacity. And that's the, the lizard tail, the tail of the lizard. So as we know, lizards have an amazing regenerative capacity. Some of the other model systems that we've talked about on the show, like zebrafish, also have these you know, really amazing regenerative approaches and things that we're always trying to harness in the field and ultimately trying to figure out how we can grow back our own limbs, kind of like what you know, lizards and zebrafish can do, right? But the problem, and I actually didn't know this, that when lizards regenerate their tails, they do it imperfectly. So they're not able to regenerate their tail to a form that they're born with. And in fact, the, the tail that's formed through the regenerative process is very, it's really full filled with cartilage. And it, that, that's not how it normally is born with that particular tail, right? And this, this kind of has to do with sonic hedgehog signaling. It's really important in, in tail regeneration, the zebrafish. Um, so these folks over in, at USC, University of Southern California, right down the road from me here in Los Angeles, um, in the lab of Megan uh, Hudnall, they were actually introducing embryonic neural stem cells from the lizard back into the tail after the lizard is in the process of regeneration. And what they saw here is after introducing these NSCs, that were modified to actually be knocked out for hedgehog signaling, which I told you in the beginning is important for tail regeneration in the first place. Um, for some reason, they're actually able to grow back in a more normal, natural way, like in a way that the, the lizard is actually born with, you know? So it's, uh, uh, it's a story that's, you know, I, I need to take a deeper dive into this, but apparently these smooth and knockout embryonic neural stem cells can, you know, alter the formation of cartilage, which I said was found in the regenerated tail, but not in the natural born tail in these lizards. So it, it's, a, it's an important kind of milestone in helping us understand why regeneration takes place the way it does in this model system. And if you think about it kind of super ultra long term, right? Uh, if we're thinking about regenerating human limbs and human organs, we want to be able to regenerate them to the, the way they were there naturally, right? The way the the form of the organ or limb that you were born with, ideally just restore it back to how it was. It's the Wolverine scenario, right? Perfect regenerative capacity. Um, so we're not even close to that for humans, but perhaps at least in lizards, we can make their lives a little bit better and <laughs> restore their their tails back to the way they 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 used to be normally, as opposed to these kind of imperfect amalgamations of uh, the lizard tail, and it's uh, it's a cool dev bio story. Um, you know, it's I'm always a fan of these cool model systems, as you know. Yeah, you love these systems. You love the Evo Devo. You don't you don't see it in the um, funding acknowledgement for this, but I I have to say I'm speculating that this is funded by our 
future um, lizard overlords from outer space because I mean, <laughs> who the hell cares about regenerating lizards? That's what I'm saying. No, I'm kidding. It's very fundamental insight. And it's very important. And for me, just looking at it, uh, cursory look, uh, I will admit, but I'm just, I'm, I'm really impressed by how when you look into another system, just how foreign it is and how they have these tools that you just didn't even know you could do. And you're like, wow, could I try that? Like here, they got these, the NSCs that they transplant. I see they got them from parthenogenetic, parthenogenetic lizard embryos so that they could get a, like a clonal match. Like who knew? Is that, that's like a thing. I guess that's like de rigueur in the lizard systems, however many people are operating that. But like, I would just wonder when you go, when I get a chance to do a sabbatical, that's what I want to do. I want to go to a model system that's totally whacked out of my wheelhouse so that I can maybe try and incorporate some of these different ways of thinking. Because that's the key here, not just about the tech um, and the assay, but also just the mechanisms that go on in, in lizards, our, our future uh, bosses. <laughs> I, for one, welcome our future lizard overlords. Okay. Well, you're right. I, I think I totally agree with you. You know, we had Ken Poss on the show, who's a, an extraordinaire with all things zebrafish regeneration. <clears throat> we even talked about the Komodo dragon with uh, Benoit Bruneau. Remember that? Hmm. So there's really a, a need to better understand some of these cool, unique model systems. But I, I totally agree with you. Um, when it comes to the actual genetics of doing the CRISPR in lizard embryos and lizard NSCs, I can't imagine that's easy. I don't know anything about the lizard genome. Maybe it's super well characterized and maybe CRISPR is very easy and accessible in the lizard. But my gut feeling says it's not. So props to these folks for, you know, taking a, a stab at a, a really unique model system here. That's very relevant for what we study in regenerative medicine. Absolutely. Maybe we can talk to uh, Kate. I mean, if anybody has a line with the, uh, the lizard overlords out in space, it's her. But we'll see. <laughs> we'll get to that. Before we do, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Do you work with human pluripotent stem cell derived cardiomyocytes? Use stem cells, stem diff, cardiomyocyte media, and supplements to differentiate, enrich, expand, and cryopreserve functional HPSC-derived cardiomyocytes. Stem diff cardiomyocyte media is compatible with human embryonic stem and induced pluripotent stem cells, and the resulting cardiomyocytes can be used for disease modeling, drug discovery, and cardiotoxicity screening. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash stem diff dash cardio. All right, everybody, on this episode, we have a very special out of this world guest, Dr. Kate Rubens, who was fellow principal investigator at the Whitehead before she left that gig to join NASA is now an astronaut, been to space a couple times. Her uh, research focus was in uh, cancer biology and genomics. Um, she's now a NASA, NASA astronaut and microbiologist, has completed two expeditions to the ISS, that's the International Space Station, spent 300 days in space, became the first person to sequence DNA in space, that was about five years ago, and grew cardiomyocytes in collaboration with Arun, my co-host, in Joseph Wu's lab at Stanford. Um, performed PCR and microbiome experiments, why in orbit, she did it all. She was at the bench in space. I mean, can you believe it? She has a PhD in cancer biology from Stanford University and studied viral diseases as a fellow principal investigator at the Whitehead Institute. Dr. Rubens, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. 
Absolutely. It's wonderful to be here. Um, and I'm just going to enjoy catching up with Arun. We, uh, we, when we normally work together, I'm not on the planet. So this is actually <laughs> going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being here, Kate, and taking the time out of your crazy busy schedule, I'm sure, you know, traveling back and forth in space to actually join us here on the show. I mean, I got to say, you probably have the best out of office message of all time, (laughs) which when I received it back in 2016 was, quote unquote, I'm off the planet and unable to respond to your email. So you can't get much better than that, right? <laughs> Y'all are uh, welcome to use that. <laughs> okay, I might have to do that. Uh, but you know, before you actually started taking business trips to the ISS, and you were, and of course you still are, a trained virologist with an amazing academic background, as Dalon just alluded to. And so since we are a cell biology show, tell us a little bit about your biomedical research road before becoming an astronaut. In particular, what inspired you to go into virology? specifically? Yeah, I actually started in public health um, in high school, and there was a program through the county public health department that had uh, high school students get educated in HIV, and we learned uh, from doctors as well as public health experts. We had meetings with patients, um, and what I thought was the coolest thing is we got to meet actual researchers that were working on HIV. Um, So once we really learned about the biology and could be good educators, we went out and did peer education Uh, for HIV prevention. And I just thought that was a really neat experience. I was fascinated by the work that the scientists were doing. This was in the mid nineties when we had protease inhibitors for HIV, but we didn't have much else. And so the viruses were evolving resistance. Um, And that idea that there's this dance between the virus and the immune system and the virus does one thing and then the immune system counteracts that and then the virus can actually evolve resistance was very interesting. So When I went to school uh, at UC San Diego, I started working in an HIV lab at the Salk Institute looking at integrase inhibitors. And this uh, this was kind of an exciting time to be doing that. So we were looking at both chemical compounds that would be inhibitory for the virus, as well as understanding mechanisms of HIV integration into the genome. Uh, And I think that's where I got very interested in in genomics and what's going on with the with the host cell and the virus and the interaction between those two. I've, I've studied that pretty much my whole life. Uh, I've just changed the, the virus family a few times. Hmm. Yeah, Kate, reading up on your history, it's hard not to get pulled into a, a rabbit hole containing uh, the achievements of one of your mentors, Patrick O. Brown, who to me, in my opinion, is like the archetypal rebel thinker. Um, just in brief, he made amazing contributions to science from retroviral replication to taking part in like inventing and formulating microarrays. Then on a sabbatical, this is the best for me, on a sabbatical, just over a decade ago, he cobbled together the fabric of what's now known as impossible foods. I mean, I got some impossible burgers in my fridge right now. <laughs> but the reason why I mention him is because with the mentor like that, you know, who just is all over the place and beyond, it's not hard to believe that a, a doctoral student would see outer space as like a career path. I think most people would never even consider it. But do you think that there's a part for that? You know, the unbridled imagination of a mentor can unleash that spectacular ambition? Or is it, I mean, in your case, at least you can only speak for yourself, or in your case, was it always, was space always in your DNA? Yeah, absolutely. Pat was an incredible mentor. So I was really lucky. I I had three mentors uh, during my PhD thesis. I had Pat, I had David Wellman, um, also at Stanford, uh, and Peter Jarling was at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Disease. So uh, Pete really brought the Ebola piece of it. Uh, David Wellman is a microbiologist. 
Um, and he and Pat together uh, have published a number of really exciting things. And Pat was just such a great mentor because he would decide what he was going to do. He'd have some crazy idea. When I first started in the lab, he's like, why are we paying to access journal subscriptions? This needs to be free to the world. You guys are only going to publish in open access journals. And all the grad students in the lab kind of smack our foreheads and go, oh my God, but we want this science <laughs> or nature paper. And he's like, no, you're going to publish quality research and it's going to be in an open access journal. And I'm going to, we're going to build this open access. And, and this was before public library of science was started. And, and he started that. And so I think to watch somebody say, this is what I want to accomplish and everybody around him going, that's nuts. And then he just goes and does it anyway. Um, you know, and, and it was sort of the same thing with impossible foods. So I think that did give me the framework to say, Hey, uh, if you decide you want to do something, even though it really does sound like the most, uh, you know, when I was in high school and I, I said, I want to be an astronaut. People are like, yeah, you can't do that. That this isn't a job that, that people go get like this, <laughs> you know, good luck. You're not a fighter pilot. Um, I think I did have that framework where somebody like, this is what I want to do and I'm going to make it happen. Hmm. Yeah. So let's skip forward a few years and here you are as an NASA astronaut after all that training in virology and microbiology. Right. And so I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the ISS, the international space station is actually a research laboratory, right? A lot of our listeners may not realize that one of the primary functions of the ISS is for research purposes. And in fact, a lot of what you did in your daily work as an astronaut aboard the ISS was to conduct experiments for a whole range of research projects. And some of them actually like our, our IPS cardiomyocyte projects from Joe Wu's lab at Stanford are biomedical experiments and other are physical or material sciences experiments, right? So, I mean, tell us a little bit about the a typical work day aboard the ISS, the International Space Station, and how you actually incorporated all of these research projects into your daily schedule, and maybe a little bit also about the capabilities and the equipment, like the microscopes, cell culture hoods, et cetera, that are actually there on space station for research use, because a lot of people don't realize that this is a pretty advanced laboratory. Yeah, you see videos of astronauts, you know, floating around and doing spacewalks. And we talk a lot about launches and landings. If anybody's ever watched a SpaceX launch, it's super cool. But really what we do spend the most of our time on is laboratory work. And that actually is just as cool as the other stuff because you're doing it while you're floating. So your lab on the ISS, just to give you a sense, is the ISS volume is about the size of a 747. Um, so we have multiple modules and a lot of these modules have... Uh, equipment that's devoted just to scientific research. So it's not just biology. Of course, we are doing material science. Uh, there were some really cool chemistry experiments, um, fluidics experiments. You don't have buoyancy-driven convection in microgravity. So you can look at materials properties in a completely different way. Um, the physics experiments are awesome. Cold Atom Lab, there's a, there's a great paper describing Cold Atom Lab um, from last year uh, that folks like physics, it's really cool. Of course, the biology was the one that I'm the most interested in and the facilities there are quite good. It's really um, started to be equipped much more like a standard US lab. We do things a little bit differently. Of course, everything floats. So there's sometimes some very small problems that turn into big problems, like how do you uh, pipette in space or what do you do with your pipette tips? You can't just use gravity to propel them downwards into a little trash bag busted back on your on your lab bench. So um, there are a lot of things that we have to solve in terms of how do you do a laboratory setup, but the capabilities are really incredible. So it's spread out over several modules. Um, we have at last count, I think I counted like three or four different microscopes on board. 
Uh, some of them are fluorescent microscopes. There's confocal microscopes. We've got incredible tissue culture capabilities. And, and really, those were pioneered by your experimenter. And that was the first time that we were doing long-duration cell culture on board the ISS. So we have a glove box that's dedicated to cell culture. It's not a laminar flow hood. Um, it's actually a full glove box that you put your hands into. And we've got uh, you know, incubators, centrifuges, everything that you would expect in a normal molecular biology lab. You just are going to do things a little bit different in terms of your fluid handling because it's all in microgravity. Everything's in free fall. So uh, your experiments are floating. You're floating. That's what gives us these cool properties that we can examine uh, in microgravity. You know, the entire lab is in that microgravity environment. Just creates a few logistical challenges. Yeah, you talk about, I mean, how you've had to adjust the uh, framework there to, to suit, I mean, space and, and microgravity. Um, and it gets me thinking that maybe the, that this is the, the, the future of science in some ways. We had Alison Watry on the show a while back, um, and it was right after he had recovered an ISS-bound experiment that had come back to Earth. Uh, and it got us talking about how experimental setups are due for an overhaul. And you talked about how Rune's experiment was pioneering because you had to like figure out a way to make it work, right? Um, and what he, we were talking about with Alison was that the automation would be essential for future labs. And it was more of a framework we we're talking about on Earth with you know a bunch of boxes and it's, you're all doing it remotely, robotics. Um, but you know, as you, as someone who's classically trained, who's come up amidst the whole whirlwind of biotech and robotics and genomics and all the technology that's now at hand, but also you're really on the bleeding edge and have to visualize and imagine how we're gonna practice science in the future and in these alternate environments. So how, how do you envision the actual, you know, doing of science changing as we move forward? Do you think that like, it's gonna look radically different um, or is it like you described? It's going to be tweaks of the things that look familiar here on Earth. Yeah, I think from a from a micro, you know, kind of a microgravity perspective, I imagine we're going to continue to build our cap capabilities. You know, we've had labs on Earth uh, for a hundred years that have been doing microbiology. We've really only started to do kind of this more higher throughput molecular biology on the space station in the last 20 years have we even had that capability. I think we're going to continue to improve on that. And it's such a unique um, aspect to be able to tweak gravity in your system. We can't do that in labs on Earth. So I think there's a lot of things that we'll see in low Earth orbit that are still going to be capabilities. We may start to see those in things like commercial space stations. You know, there may be applications for biotech or pharmaceutical companies that want to look at materials properties um, or cell growth or cell organization outside that constant 1G field. In terms of science in general, uh, I saw this a little bit in my lab, you know, even in, in the you know, late 2008-2009 timeframe, we were starting to transition. We still had a lot of wet lab scientists, but as we were thinking about hiring people um, we we're starting to transition more and more to people who could do data science, bioinformatics, large scale data set processing. And I think we've come to a point where we can generate so much data from a single experiment that the proportion of wet lab scientists are still always going to be there, but they now need partners uh, or they themselves need to be able to process and handle all of this data. And so I think that we're going to start to see a lot of our scientific endeavor um, is going to just be more and more computational as we can generate increasingly 
uh, huge data sets pretty cheaply um, from, from just a single experiment or two. So good bench lab scientists are always going to be in demand, but understanding how to design an experiment so, so that you can, you know, in the classical experiments, you do something and maybe you get a result or you don't get a result on a Western blot. With a data-driven experiment, you're always going to get data. The question is, is it good data that's coming out the back end? So as a, as a wet lab person, understanding that you will get information and making sure that you've designed the parameters of your experiment to give you that good information and then correctly analyzing it. I think it's just going to be uh, increasingly important in the future in ways that bench scientists in the 70s and the 80s never could have dreamed of. Yeah, for sure. And I guess kind of piggybacking on that in terms of the specific experiments that you might be the most excited about, you know, I've, I've ever since our, our project together in 2016, I've had the opportunity to connect with so many different folks in the space biosciences field, right? And it seems like everybody has their particular niche that they're trying to flesh out, figuring out how different cell types work in a low gravity context, right? And, and for sure, the ISS has become so accessible for basic biomedical research over the years, even in the last five years, but there's still a lot to learn about how the human body actually functions in space and the cells of the human body, right? So as somebody who's actually conducted a bunch of different experiments in space, looking at different cell types, what sort of like current and future cell biology projects are you the most excited about? In part because they're cool to do and also because they'll important, you know, answer important questions about human biology in space. Yeah, I'm really excited about experiments that are looking at multiple cell types and their interactions. Um, you know, I think you can look at Certainly the lack of gravity has uh, various stimulatory effects and, and you see things in all different cell systems that are different versus the ground controls. Um, but I think where we're gonna really see a large delta due to microgravity is when we start to have cell types interacting with each other, um, the way things grow and the, the way the fluidics forces shape our cell interactions are very different with and without gravity. And so I think when cells have the, uh, certainly you can even see this at the macro level, when you look at humans, all of a sudden we adapt and we start working on the ceiling and, you know, we change the way we locomote, we actually can see changes in the brain matter after somebody's been in space for a while. And so when you get down to the cell level, the way that cells are going to uh, interact, you know, for example, on a, on a structure, on a scaffold, um, there'll be fundamental uh, properties that, that will be different. I think membrane biology is going to be very interesting. And I think looking at multiple cell types interacting with each other and cell signaling will probably be a really rich field in the future. Um, that's something that you can tweak with gravity. We can also look at partial gravity environments, and, and that's not something we've done a lot of, um, but that will be very cool. And it's very uh, informative, particularly for our future exploration efforts uh, to lunar and Mars gravity, where we're talking one six and one third G. Wow, space on Mars, I mean, science on Mars. <laughs> um, the, uh, I have to ask because, you know, it's such a unique career path to be, you know, this PhD in Stanford and the Whitehead and then NASA, right? So what's, what's the, the next step? You can't spend the rest of your life as a space scientist, I mean, maybe you can, but, um, how, cause it's a big shift, right? You go from studying viruses and genomics, um, and now you're the specialist in space doing all things cell biological. Do you think you'll find your way back to virology or is this, or now you're studying microgravity or are you just, you know, is it always a moving target? Do you have a, a path that you've tracked ahead of you or you're just doing what's right in front of you? 
Um, I'm always doing things that I enjoy. And so I'm currently still on the active astronaut list. Um, I'm part of the, the Artemis team that's working on developing our lunar exploration architecture. Um, so the other thing that I get to do in my spare time is working on uh, designing the next generation of spacesuits. And that's a little bit more to deal with the, the human physiology. How do you keep a human alive? How do you scrub CO2, generate oxygen, take care of thermal constraints? And then a lot about physiology. How are we going to move, uh, protect people's joints? Uh, the way we locomote on the moon is this real bounding uh, type mechanism versus floating in microgravity and, and moving around doing uh, spacewalks with our arms, which is what we currently do on the space station. And so that's been a lot of fun is to really look at things like human performance, uh, maximizing capabilities and, and life support systems in the suit. Um, I still do some virology. Actually, when, when COVID started, um, you know, NASA couldn't train us in person anymore. And I found myself with a little bit of free time. And so found a group that was working on COVID diagnostics and got a chance to do viral diagnostics again for a little bit, just as a volunteer project. And I really enjoyed that. So I think probably, you know, I, I will always keep an, an interest in virology and virus host interactions. Um, and maybe we'll start doing some more research on that in the future. Um, but certainly the microgravity research area is just exploding right now. And that's keeping us pretty busy with everything that we're doing at NASA with life sciences and cell biology. Yeah, no harm in keeping your options open, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wanted to circle back actually to something that you brought up earlier, which is the commercialization of space. And that's, you know, as space travel has actually become more accessible over the years, a lot of interest has developed in maybe leveraging space and microgravity for commercial opportunities, right? And this, in part, this is because of the unique properties of microgravity that impacts processes like important in materials manufacturing, sedimentation, for example, and even on the biomedical side of things. There's been some examples where microgravity has facilitated the development of biomedical products like protein crystallization during the Keytruda drug development process, for example, and bringing it back to stem cells, folks are actually starting to look at how microgravity might impact organoid formation or stem cell differentiation, all these things that could have translational value for cell therapy here on earth. So what do you think about leveraging space for improved like biomanufacturing of products or maybe processes that couldn't be developed here on earth? And what questions do we do you think we need to actually address and answer before biomanufacturing in space can actually become commonplace? Yeah, I think a lot of it's in the in the early stages. Um, you know, a lot of these these biomanufacturing questions are centering around things that are chemical or material processes. So the lack of buoyancy driven convection is really interesting. Um, particularly when you're talking about fluid mixing, uh, when you've got more viscous fluids, this can be really uh, very interesting for certain types of, of metals and looking at melting temperatures. Um, combustion in space is very different. Um, and so when you're talking about making a physical product, when you make that product in microgravity, there's examples from, there's a company that's looking at um, possibly manufacturing corneas. And if they can uh, manufacture those in space, they could possibly have um, more spherical shape and less defects. And so these, again, these are still in the very experimental stage. Um, another thing that they're looking at um, is these, a particular way of manufacturing um, these Z-bland fibers, so these, these optical fibers, and, and doing that process in microgravity, um, given the material composition and the way things, uh, we spend a lot of time extruding these fibers from various uh, manufacturing machines. And so these are things that can happen either on the International Space Station part as 
part of commercial efforts or possibly in the future on commercial space stations. I think it's going to be one of these things where the fields, you know, people try a whole bunch of different things. Some things are not going to work better in space. And then some things may give you such a value um, that it is worth it to think about how you would scale up and actually manufacture that item in space. Some things may just be more in the basic uh, understanding of the manufacturing process. So you may not manufacture that item in space, but you may refine your methods based on what you find uh, in, in microgravity. I think from the biomanufacturing side of things, you know, we're still early in the days of working on developing um, bioprinters. So we're sending a couple of those to space station and we're gonna start printing biological materials, um, different cell types, different scaffolds, that kind of thing. You know, I think obviously the, the long-term goal is, is could we develop, um, you know, organoids or organs and actually print those in space? Lots of things have to be answered in terms of like facilities, you know, could you maintain that level of cleanliness? Could you actually do a production level uh, printing where you would Im then implant something into a human being? There's a whole lot of processes that have to be established and that's of course gonna be harder in space. Um, but I think it's very cool that we're taking these first steps and sending these materials in space and actually working on uh, doing, you know, biomanufacturing in space and then analyzing what comes out and see if, see if there is truly a benefit there. Um, and then what can we learn about the basic biology? I think that discussion about co the commercial applications is an exciting new field. That does not mean that we're abandoning the basic research. There's still so much to learn and low earth orbit right now, the only place that we really can effectively get rid of gravity or tune it as a variable. So we're going to keep that uh, the basic research component around for a long time. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of really cool fundamental biology questions that we can answer that don't have an immediate commercial application. So yes, notwithstanding all those commercial applications also, I mean, there's a lot of philosophical, technological, medical, what have you, justifications for having a, a presence in, in space and beyond. Um, but the you know there's the the recent advent of of space tourism has stirred debate as to whether or not commercialization of like the tourist element at least um, is the best allocation of resources. So for as a scientist, you know what's the science response to that? Uh, is there a, is there a science response where you say there is an upside for humanity writ large? You know particularly, I mean upside for those people on the opposite end of the spectrum is like the Bezoses and the Bransons. What do you say to those people to say, yeah, you know, all these civilians going up to space, there is a long game upside there or, or isn't there? Yeah, I think, you know, some of the, the big questions about this is, is resources and is this how we should be spending our resources? And, you know, I do think that, that people worry about uh, spending money in space. The thing is, though, that the money's not being spent in space. There is actually no currency in low Earth orbit. So, you know, I, I think that I think it is a good question of where should we be putting our, our time and our resources. But, um, you know, really what a lot of that money is going to is to uh, develop the space industry. And so a lot of these players in the in the commercial market are either startup companies, um, you know, or companies that are working on both NASA contracts and space tourism. Um, I personally, you know, the billionaires can do what they want. That's their money. I don't know that we're going to get huge benefit to humanity by sending a bunch of billionaires to space. I'm much more excited in making space accessible to everybody. Um, and so, I, I, unfortunately, I think the way that you have to do that sometimes is it can be very expensive to start to do something. You know, when you look at airlines at the beginning, this is, it was, 
you know, so much more money than any of us could have afforded to take a, a transatlantic flight. Uh, and now this is something that we can do. So I think uh, it's good to have people pave the way if they want to offer up their resources and it's not government resources and taxpayer dollars to do it. That's fine with me. But I would like to see this be open to everybody. I don't want this to be an exclusive club um, that's for billionaires only. The benefit that I really see in terms of like, you know, for just everyday people, and, and I am one of these everyday people, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a billionaire, I'm, uh, I am just a normal, regular bench scientist who happened to be an astronaut, but I get the chance to go talk to um, kids, I get to reach out to people who are maybe interested in being scientists or astronauts, um, and talk to them about space exploration. And sometimes people will want uh, an astronaut to come talk at their school, or they'll they'll want to have a discussion with an astronaut because they say, "Well, you've you know you've been to space. Tell us about that." And we end up talking about science the whole time and and the cool things that you can do uh, in microgravity and the way that science is exploration. And so I think that uh, there is a lot of value in inspiring kids to go into STEM fields. Um, and I think that's where you know if they look at this and go, "Hey." Um, you know, maybe right now you have to be an astronaut with all this training or a billionaire, but by the time I'm old enough to get my space driver's license, I could actually do this. I, I think that's a pretty cool thing. And it's, it's something, if we really want to venture beyond this planet and we want to start exploring the rest of our solar system, we are going to have to have LEO low Earth orbit move more towards commercial applications and, and to the space tourism. Uh, and this is really going to allow us uh, as as the exploration side of things, you know, the, the government side of things where we can take those risks to move further and, and to go to the moon and to go to Mars. Sending Shatner up there. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, well, this has been great, but we're not going to let you go yet. Uh, just got a couple of uh, peripheral questions here. Um, so first, you know, you are a scientist and an astronaut. If you weren't either of those things, uh, what would you be? So um, little known fact, I was actually an English literature major, uh, minor in, in undergrad. Um, I really enjoy reading. I don't know that I would have gone into um, English literature as like a full-time profession. I think I would have been an academic uh, in some way. I took a very cool class that was um, uh, kind of computer machine human interface uh, in undergrad. And I thought that was very cool. I probably would have uh, done something with how we interact with machines and and the um, sort of the intersection of um, cognitive science and computer science and um, you know behavioral and psychology issues with humans. I think that's very cool how we interact with our with our not our man-made environment um, and uh, that's becoming increasingly important with looking at how we interact with our with our devices and it's actually one of the things we do a lot when we talk about our interaction with the spacecraft is is what are human factors what are ways that we can design spacecraft and spacesuits so that we reduce error uh, and we uh, increase our uh, mission success capabilities well i mean the way you've thought that through it's like you almost you almost did that i feel like you kind <laughs> of like half did that but then you <laughs> became an astronaut um all right uh next uh what is one piece of uh, advice that you'd ever been given that you'd repeat to, to someone behind you, either professional or not? Um, I think professional advice and particularly for, for you know, students, grad students, uh, undergrads that are starting to work in the lab. Lab research is, 
it's awesome. It's exciting. And it can also drive you nuts. Like when you're at the bench and your experiment's not working for the 50th time. Um, and so I think it is, you know, pick something that you are, people always say, pick something you're passionate about. Like, like no kidding, pick something that you wake up and you're like, I want to go answer this freaking question. And I'm going to put up with my experiment not working 50 times because I'm so stubborn that I want to get the answer to this question. And if you've got a question that you want to answer, then you're pretty happy even when things aren't working to spend your life, you know, trying to figure out, you know, the answer to this question, solve this problem. So pick something that grips you. Um, and a lot of times when, when you really talk to people, they'll have something that you know, maybe around the age of 10, 11, or 12, that seems to be the time where people are like, I found this thing, and I got really interested in it, and I haven't been able to let it go. So if, if there's a, you know, a question that they were thinking about a lot when they were a kid, or there's something that they're seeing in their current research, and it's like, why is, why is nobody else answer this? A lot of times I think grad students maybe think they're, they're a little bit too um, unaware of their own value. Think, well, nobody's answered this because it's too hard, or uh, maybe somebody's answered it and I just haven't figured that out yet. I, you know, sometimes people haven't answered it because they don't, they haven't thought of it. They haven't had the time or the resources. And so if it's a cool question, um, I think try to answer it. And sometimes the way to do that too is to combine a few different kinds of fields. Um, so that's the, I'm giving you two pieces of, this is two pieces of advice for free. Um, the intersection of two different fields can be incredibly exciting and we get very siloed and very in-depth into our particular chosen field but if you say hey i'm going to put this thing together with like you know a natural language processing like but let's look at different kinds of algorithms to understand this data set or why don't i combine this chemistry piece with this very interesting cell biology piece that kind of thing if you're willing to put in the time and the effort to work in two different fields uh, can be incredibly rewarding. And that's where, you know, that's where you make your career and that's where you have fun spending your time. That's where you blaze your trail, guys. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, finally, I can't let you go without this. This is kind of a personal question, but I'm sure everybody's wondering the same thing. What's the best thing about it? Is it getting up there? Is it the ride down? Is it being on the float? I mean, if you had to pick one thing or tell us all of them, what, what's so great? About, about going to space? Um, I think probably the best thing is just the opportunity to see Earth from that vantage point. Um, it, I really, I didn't think it was gonna be that cool before I launched. I was like, yeah, yeah, I've watched all the movies and I've seen the Earth from mission control. Um, and there's something about seeing it with your own eyes. The Earth is so much brighter than we can really see in TV or movies or film. That's maybe the way human eye processes the dynamic range of light, but it's glow. It's like this glowing ball and it's so much brighter than the blackness of space. And then you really can see a tremendous amount. You're looking at the continent level, but you can get these uh, cameras and look down at the earth. And so you get to see all these places on earth that like I'll probably never visit. Um, my pretty much my favorite thing was just sitting in the cupola, which is our, our module that looks down at the earth and we've got these seven giant windows and you can actually like tuck your whole body into the cupola in a little ball and just float around the earth, uh, do a whole orbit for 90 minutes. So I would put in my headphones, I'd get a good movie soundtrack going um, and I would go around and do an orbit from day to night uh, and just fly over the planet and, and look at this, this gorgeous earth and you know, kind of think about like, wow, how do we end up here? How is it, how is it so incredible that our planet supports life? Um, you know, and like, this is just, this is an amazing experience to be able to see it. Wow, what a trip. 
Thanks for joining us, Kate. This is uh, one of a kind for us. So we really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners too are inspired by your words and just the images. I mean, I'm picturing this bright blue ball. Hopefully one day I'll see it. Me and Shatner both. He'll take me up the next time. I hope so too. <laughs> that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Really, guys, suggest some guests. There's really no guests who might be inappropriate. We got an astronaut on today, and uh, I think that shows you the breadth of our interest and ambitions in recruiting guests. Thank you for listening, guys. You'll hear from us again in a couple weeks. Bye.